everyone. Namaste. Welcome back to Anthropods. I'm Satashma. I'm Simone, and thank you for joining us for our sixth episode, Reframing Water. Freshwater's global demand has significantly increased over the past few years due to multiple factors such as changes in land use, energy generation, widespread urbanization, and unequal distribution. Climate change further threatens society by exacerbating water stress. Water scarcity has particularly grown as a serious predicament in the South Asian subcontinent, which is home to almost 1.9 billion people. Large parts of South Asian countries experience extreme droughts, floods, amongst a myriad of other problems causing a significant burden on millions of lives. In this episode, we will be speaking with political ecologist Samir Shah, a recent PhD graduate from the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Samir specializes in water security for natural resource-based livelihoods in the Global South. Welcome to the show, Samir. Hi, Samir. Welcome to Anthropause. We're so excited to have you here with us today and talk about the water issue in South Asia. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So to begin this episode, right, when people think about water scarcity, they have a natural inclination to think of the extreme. They think about the physical unavailability of water. They often think of it as a direct outcome of climate change. What do you think about this and how would you define water scarcity? So I think what you've described really captures the dominant public perception of how many people conceive of water scarcity. That is, you know, this depoliticized framing where water unavailability is entirely blamed on factors such as population growth or climate change or uh, extreme weather variability. But I think just to begin, um, let me offer a slightly different picture to start us off. And this begins with kind of resisting this notion of what Paul Robbins in 2011 called apolitical ecology and what scholars like Michael Watts and Paris Blakey, Amartya Sen and so forth in discussing complex issues of famine, food insecurity and land degradation have also evoked in their works. And the central argument here is that problems such as spatial water scarcity should really be denaturalized or at the very least viewed as co-produced both by ecological dynamics and historical and active systems of governance, institutional systems at different scales, all of which uh, really shape who and what are served by water interventions and uh, for what purposes, right? Um, but I think rarely do we ever speak about water scarcity, spatial water scarcity, apart from human or ecological requirements. Uh, our conversations about water scarcity are in fact questions really about nature-society relationships for which the idea of water security, I believe at least, is uh, particularly instructive. And I'm sure we'll discuss the issue of water security as we go forth, but by that I mean whether and to what extent people can avoid unacceptable risks in their daily lives, such as injury or food insecurity, meet very context-specific needs, and ultimately achieve their self-defined aspirations. So, I think here water security is additionally shaped by processes of intersectional marginalization for which, um, you know, the ability to acquire and benefit from safe and sufficient water is unevenly distributed. 
Um, and let me refer to the United Nations Human Development Report, which was published in 2006 and specifically focused on issues of water scarcity. And in fact, it was titled Beyond Scarcity, Power, Poverty, and the Global Water Crisis. And it really recognized that uh, the water crisis is attributable to historical and ongoing marginalization that affects multiple determinants or pathways for water access. Um, the last way in which I would think about, you know, spatial water scarcity and even further water security is through um, a discursive and political lens. So, for example, Lila Mehta's work has demonstrated how the government of Gujarat manufactured perpetual and everlasting water scarcity as a justification for the Narmada projects, particularly the Sardar Sarovar Dam. So when we're considering, um, you know, the relations between people and water, I think we really need to understand the role of institutions, both formal and informal institutions, in discursively constructing ideas of scarcity, and also in um, unevenly mediating both spatial water scarcity as well as water security uh, or insecurity as scaled to the household. So water crisis is a global problem. According to World Wildlife Fund, about 1.1 billion people lack access to water and a total of 2.7 billion face water insecurity for at least one month of the year. So keeping these numbers in mind, what do you think makes the South Asian context unique compared to other countries and regions? Right. So uh, I've come across numbers that are actually considerably higher. So, for example, one study in 2016 estimated that nearly 4 billion people live in areas where severe water scarcity existed for at least one month per year, 25% of which live in India alone, right? That's 1 billion people. Um, so since my main focus is really on rural areas and in particular resource-based livelihoods, I'll try to approach that question from, from that lens. Um, the first aspect is I think that, you know, over 60% of India's net zone area or 86 million hectares comes under rain-fed land, rain-fed agriculture. And in many areas of the country, precipitation variability and extreme events are expected to increase under climate change projections. This will not only affect agriculture, but uh, other resource-based livelihoods that are deeply interconnected with uh, agriculture. So, for example, rural labor, right? Uh, it will also affect fishing, livestock rearing, and transhumanist pastoralism, uh, which many, many people rely on, certainly. So the exposure context, particularly given the strong dependency on natural resources, namely precipitation, is a first important consideration uh, within the South Asian context. Uh, second, I think, you know, the level of abject oppression and marginalization, particularly at the intersection of gender and caste by institutions, uh, formal and informal, and occurring at multiple scales from the state to the village, mediates water insecurity. Um, so here I'll go back to the notion of entitlements, which was developed by Amartya Sen. And they most simply represent the capacity of people to acquire resources, such as water. This ability to acquire resources, um, as we all know, is very sharply differentiated and should be understood through long-term colonial and capitalist processes that have appropriated and accumulated resources, such as property, uh, that have concentrated power and privilege within elite circles, 
and that have really disenfranchised many people uh, from improving their entitlement structure. Um, a third aspect, which again, isn't necessarily unique per se, but is impossible to ignore in the South Asian context is how the neoliberal political economy affects spatial water scarcity and household water insecurity. So here I'm referencing everything from, you know, valuing water economically and justifying reallocation from rural to urban centers as such to, uh, you know, state and corporate land and water grabbing and dispossession to the increasing costs of production and the deregulation of certain commodities over time. That has been a strong component of the agrarian crisis. And that has really simultaneously pushed many farmers, particularly larger landed ones, into more water intensive agriculture for, for higher incomes, right? So all that said, um, exposure to hazard events such as precipitation variability to entitlement distribution to the shifting political economic context of water rights and water use really all combine to unevenly affect household water insecurity and water-related risk uh, in South Asia and through my experiences in India. Um, but even here, you know, like I would maintain that certain underlying mechanisms that produce water insecurity are shared broadly across cross-cultural contexts. So to this, I would add that many scholars are actually moving away from these distinctions between global North and global South water problems. And as one example, I was privileged to be on a recent paper led by Dr. Katie Meehan at King's College London, in which we argued that institutionalized systems of power and oppression must force us to really reconsider several myths of household water insecurity in the global north. Um, and this includes the idea that water access is universal, that uh, water is clean, that water is affordable, that water systems are trustworthy. So all of this is really to suggest that, you know, when we seek to understand water security, it's really critical, at least in my eyes, that we explore these place-based and context-specific drivers, but that we also learn from such cases to better theorize and understand water insecurity and its reproduction uh, in our own backyards and the world around us. Now, going back to this idea of how climate change is just going to make the situation worse, right? There has been like an overwhelming amount of articles and posts about how many South Asian cities are on the verge of running out of water. And this particular case in Chennai in 2019, right? And on 19th June, Chennai city officials declared day zero, implying that almost no water was left as all the four main reservoirs uh, supplying water to the city had run dry. And... To give a little more context, Chennai metropolitan area has an estimated population of 8.6 million people, all of whom rely on these reservoirs. I believe from this event, water anxiety still prevails in the region. So are we expected to see more of such similar problems in the future? And if so, what would it look like? Right, exactly. That's a great question. So um, with climate change, we know that this envelope of certainty as it relates to, um, you know, for example, precipitation variability, or as you mentioned, the filling of dams, uh, that envelope of certainty uh, is actually widening, right? So that means that we can expect greater variability in the climate more generally, but also we can expect uh, these extreme events, or at least what we consider right now to be extreme events to occur in much greater frequency in the future. But, you know, just 
jumping on the back of the last few questions, um, we've discussed that there is a difference between the occurrence of drought as a phenomenon and the impacts that it has, right? The latter of which, the impacts are really mediated by institutions and sets of resources, social citizenship, uh, the extent to which people are enfranchised within societies and so forth. Um, just to draw on one kind of interesting example from my own research in South Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, one critical risk to water security that I've come across really relates to how water rights and allocation for particular stakeholders, namely agriculturalists in centralized water distribution systems like large dams, are really increasingly threatened by both competing demands over water, but also water supply reductions attributable to dynamics like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or more broadly thinking about, um, you know, increases in aridity or uh, changes in stream flow and so forth. Um, but I've really come to understand the problem of water conflict and water insecurity as only approximately related to heightening demand and climate change, right? And much more rooted in this myopic and narrow path dependent focus that we see on controlling and distributing water using centralized distribution systems, right? We often focus on um, like large dams and canals and irrigation systems. And I think this over-focus has often come at the expense of much more diversified institutional arrangements at different scales for water security. So here I'm thinking about, you know, well-regulated markets or incentives for low-intensity agriculture or new livelihood pathways that are entirely delinked from the impacts of shifting water availability at the nexus and so on. Um, so I think going back to your original question, all of this said, we can't prevent drought, right? But we can reduce and potentially even prevent significant and cascading impacts of drought. So I think that question is a question about governance. And I think that's really the central focus that states need to take on as we move forward, particularly in the context of climate change and variability. So speaking of drought, let's move on to Maharashtra, which is currently the second most populous state in India, where you have done research as well. So drought <clears throat> remains a recurrent seasonal risk in the region, as you have mentioned in one of your recently authored papers. Although drought is a natural phenomenon, like we cannot prevent it, and you just said it, what do you have to say about the claim that the imbalance is furthered due to the strategic routing of water to areas that have people with more power? So could you touch on the political economy of water? Sure. Um, so that's another great question. Uh, but let me begin by just clarifying that, you know, in India and more generally there, um, there's no real standard definition of drought, right? So like drought can be conceptualized as a meteorological phenomenon. So for example, when we see these extreme or severe departures from the long-term average monsoon, that could typically signify a meteorological drought, right? The idea of hydrological drought implies some aspect of low water storage, subsurface or surface that's driven either by meteorological changes or for example, water use decisions, right? And you mentioned sugarcane, that's clearly one of the the context that underlies hydrological drought. Um, another kind of drought is what we call agricultural droughts. So this occurs when um, even more specifically insufficient water exists for 
crop production. So here we're thinking about not just uh, blue water or the water that we see in liquid forms in canals or dams, but we're also thinking about soil moisture um, and its critical role to play in preventing the impacts of precipitation variability. Um, when we think about these different um, typologies or categories of drought, it's important to really remember that they are very much interrelated, right? So like meteorological drought can result in hydrological and agricultural drought, right? These like booming, huge meteorological droughts where you see a 50% departure in the monsoon. Um, but we also see instances uh, of agricultural drought that results from precipitation variability, including very subtle changes in precipitation variability that may not indicate or even be classified as a meteorological drought, precisely because we don't see the, these significant departures in the average monsoon. Um, agricultural drought may also result from you know, ineffective governance at multiple scales in terms of how we manage our water supplies. Um, so like these kinds of characterizations um, and their interrelations really start to complicate the idea of drought and that corresponding notion of spatial water scarcity that we began with uh, as an entirely natural phenomenon. Um, the other thing I just want to return to here is that um, the ontology of drought is deeply contested, particularly by states. And what I mean by this is that the nature of drought is often cast by governments as entirely natural, a recurrent phenomenon and something that we can't stop. And part of that is true, but um, you know, if we reflect back to the 2012 drought in Maharashtra, many people contested that not as a meteorological drought, but as uh, completely ineffective water governance and historical water use decisions that have uh, accreted onto these shortfalls in precipitation that exacerbate the scenario. Um, but the problem here is like, you know, when we, <laughs> when, we, when we kind of give in to these natural ideas of drought, uh, particularly when they're pushed by the state, it really obfuscates their role, the role of the government in serving the needs of the people. Um, or as we discussed earlier, you know, it can be justified to advance very harmful projects as Mehta's work has shown in Gujarat. Uh, in, in relation to her term, manufactured scarcity. Um, just to the second part of your question, uh, you asked about you know, the broader set of political and economic relations, um, which we've discussed as central in creating and maintaining these uneven terrains of water risk and water insecurity. Um, but bringing you know, both of these ideas around drought and political economy together within contexts of climate change and variability, um, people often ask, you know, what are the practical solutions and what are the ideal solutions that we need to advance? And I think when we consider all of these factors together, there's actually an embedded assumption in this question um, in that both strategies, you know, these short-term strategies, as well as these much more systemic strategies will positively increase water security. But through my own work in Maharashtra, which you pointed out, um, what I've come to better understand is a critical reason why water security programs fail, particularly in the livelihood context, and, and don't really result in broadly distributed gains for people and their livelihoods. Uh, is because they represent really technical and short-term strategies that merely reproduce how the planning, distribution, and use of water occurs in and across systems, right? That is like these practical strategies may exclude key groups, including vulnerable peoples, 
precisely because they don't deal with the institutions and relations that actually underlie water insecurity. Um, now, moving on to the question of domestic water supply, when governments aren't able to provide safe, clean water or meet the demand, what is the role of the private sector, such as water bottling companies and water tankers? Yeah. So this is obviously a very complex and hotly debated question. So any answer that I provide may not really fulfill the richness that your question really deserves. Um, but I think you can find people on you know, all sides of this privatization spectrum, right? You know, proponents have continually argued that in somewhat tired arguments, you know, that privatization could reduce the inefficiencies and non-revenue water of public utilities. Others like um, Buds and McGranahan, Jessica Buds, um, contest, contest that evidence, right? Um, they remain deeply concerned that privatization risks excluding historically marginalized and low-income groups. And they also add that, you know, there are many more factors that relate to the complex notion of access that complicate the ability for someone to actually benefit from a private sector involvement or a private sector project, right? Um, in the context of Mumbai, for example, uh, Nikhil Anand's fantastic book, Hydraulic City, which he wrote and published in 2017, argued that, quote, bloated and, quote, inefficient uh, public water systems in, in, in Mumbai have created many more pathways through which people can actually gain access to water, you know, including through leakages, through uh, relations, through officials, through plumbers, uh, and so forth, which enable water access, even if that's temporary, temporary or intermittent, but it also helps acquire other public services that are associated with water connections, right? Things like housing or um, the broader notion of rights to the city. Uh, the likes of, you know, Karen Backer here at UBC and others have argued that, you know, while the while there's no like real inherent contradiction between privatization and the human right to water or broad gains in access, we really need strong governance systems and arrangements that ensure reliable and affordable access. So to me, it's, you know, it's rarely a question about to privatize or not to privatize. And it's much more a question, you know, it always comes back to this question about governance and social difference, right? So in major cities in South Asia, especially Kathmandu, Mumbai, Karachi, um, where people have no other way but to rely on the private sector, there have been growing concerns regarding governance, of course, but then there have also been growing concerns regarding violent water mafias with the most vulnerable members of the community having to deal with them. So right. do you think that water can be a flashpoint for conflict? Yes. <laughs> in, the sh in short, yes. You know, water has always been an important component of conflict, even within solutions that are intended to redress water insecurity in context of climate change and variability, as some of my work has focused on. Um, so just to give you one example of this, um, you know, we've seen the proliferation of what are called farm ponds across rural Maharashtra for water intensive cultivation. And farm ponds, in theory, are actually these dugout structures or pits on farmers' fields that are intended to collect overland runoff and, and recharge aquifers. So, for example, you know, through the course of the monsoon or, you know, if there's a particularly heavy rainfall event, farm ponds serve an integral use in theory. 
Um, but in Maharashtra, you know, farmers, particularly larger landed farmers with social and financial capital are building and erecting these huge ponds as above ground storages that are lined with a thick or high micron plastic sheet. And from here, they're actually pumping groundwater from their wells in huge volumes, thereby converting uh, a public resource, groundwater, into a privately stored good for water-intensive cultivation. And what I've realized through my research is, you know, these interventions, which are ostensibly in, uh, intended for water conservation, quote unquote, are actually further skewing the distribution of water towards much more privileged sects of society, while also creating new conflicts through the unsustainable exploitation of water. Um, and mind you, like these kinds of interventions, they extend far past the village scale in which ponds are built, right? Um, precisely because farmers are appropriating groundwater flows and it has the potential to create or exacerbate spatial water scarcity across scales, particularly in villages that depend on um, a shared base flow or shared groundwater systems, right? So although water appropriation in this particular context, you know, and the ones that you discuss are certainly flashpoints for conflict. To me, the policies and programs, as well as farmers' motivations to take on these kinds of investments, which are, you know, um, political and economic questions, are probably a key starting point in which we really should begin to understand that conflict. Speaking of the vulnerable members of the community and over-exploitation of groundwater, so, you know, due to groundwater depletion and contamination of irrigation wells, farmers and villagers have turned to wastewater that is often filled with chemicals. Um, can this be framed as an issue of environmental justice? Right. So I'm only um, briefly familiar with the wastewater context, but I'll try to provide a little bit of insight here. Um, to me, like the wastewater issue on the whole is a little bit concerning, uh, even though it's you know usually brandished as this efficiency saving mechanism and a way to get farmers access to water in contexts of quote unquote scarcity, right? Um, and in thinking about wastewater, my questions really go beyond the unregulated provision and subsequent use of wastewater, which um, exposes people to extremely harmful uh, and dangerous toxins and has the potential to harm marginalized groups who may not have access, for example, to deeper deeper bores or that, you know, rely on shallow tube wells or things like that. Um, but I think generally a more nuanced view of wastewater may be needed. So when I was um, conducting my research in Maharashtra, um, you know, we really came to understand that while wastewater does help support particular crops, it can actually detract from the quality of such a product like figs, right? Um, and this can really affect farmers' bargaining power and the eventual income that they make in markets. And one would think that, you know, if farmers don't have access to deep bore wells and are forced to rely on um, this kind of water, it could disproportionately affect, you know, lower income or much more marginalized segments of society, as you rightly point out. Um, but I think just stepping back even further all the way, like the waste, wastewater really begs the question of, to me, why farmers are forced to handle it in the first place to put dinner on the 
table for their families, right? And it really speaks to the enormous gaps and deficiencies in the ability of the state to support the provision of a fundamental resource that millions and millions of people rely on in, in India and South Asia more broadly. So to further highlight the um, struggle faced by farmers, there have been multiple reports uh, highlighting the increasing <coughs> rates among farmers in India and Maharashtra does account for a lot of these lives lost as well. Uh, we came across this article on Circle of Blue that highlighted the words of a villager who was heard saying, the water moved from providing lives to taking lives. So what do you think about this statement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the context is absolutely tragic. Um, you know, since 1995, well over, well over 70,000 farmers have committed suicide in Maharashtra alone. Um, without knowing the full context of what that resident was saying, I think that everything from, you know, the, the inability to invest in a bore to unsustainable groundwater depletion to climactic variability and change really all play roles in, you know, quote unquote, taking life, uh, particularly within the natural resource uh, based sector. Um, but I think like when we consider and understand these tragic events, it's really important for us to recognize uh, the notion of the agrarian crisis, you know, not necessarily water unavailability in and of itself, uh, but that notion of the agrarian crisis, which uh, really underlies the tragedies that you mentioned. Um, and by the agrarian crisis, uh, we typically mean these systemic social and economic contexts of neoliberalism, which have occurred on top of historical institutional failures, such as land reform to exacerbate farmer distress. So for example, you know, the shift from the state to the market has increased agricultural costs and reduced profitability, including through the deregulation of certain commodity prices. Uh, it's shrunk the expenditure, the public expenditure in agriculture, and it's intensified these exploitive uh, rural credit markets. Right? Um, and here I'll draw on some of the work of Mohanty, uh, who has argued that neoliberalism has increased the pressure on individuals and their senses of ownership and responsibility over their own agrarian or agricultural crises. So going off what these researchers suggest, you know, while climate change and water scarcity <coughs> certainly exacerbate scenarios of distress, as you rightly mentioned, it's really the entrenchment of economic despair and social individualism that many believe to really underlie the tragedies that we see in Maharashtra and India more generally. We did touch upon the idea of conflicts and water previously, but, you know, Transboundary water border resources have become a distinctly politicized element within interregional inter relations of South Asia, with multiple water systems, such as the Indus water system, being extremely important in the region. Do you think that there is potential for water wars in the subcontinent? Uh, to be honest, I don't, uh, you know, put too much stock in the idea of water wars, just because it comes off a little bit too environmentally deterministic to me. Um, you know, back in my undergrad days, I went to a lecture by Asit Biswas, who's a renowned expert on water governance and management, uh, particularly in low and middle income countries. And what he had said uh, upon receiving the Stockholm Water Prize in 2006 was that, you know, water will never be the predominant reason or the key explanatory factor why countries could go to war. 
right? That will be underpinned by a myriad of other factors, most notably uh, failures in water governance. So I think here we are back at the idea of water governance and really thinking about that as uh, you know, the underlying cause or driver of uh, water conflict rather than the notion of you know, water availability as, or unavailability as this kind of neutral uh, reason in which conflict suddenly arises. Because our podcast is called The Anthropos, I would like to direct our conversation to the ongoing pandemic. One of the recent papers you co-authored talks about how household water insecurity has made it challenging for COVID-19 prevention and control. Could you briefly talk about what household water insecurity is and how this may be contributing to the increasing number of COVID-19 cases in South Asian countries? Sure. <laughs> so um, following the critical work of scholars like Amber Woodich and Wendy Jepson and so forth, and reflecting on you know, some of our earlier discussions in terms of focusing on systems and relations that affect whether a person can gain access to what they need vis-a-vis -vis water. I've come to understand household water security as both a process and a state of being able to resist unacceptable water risks, such as injury or you know, food insecurity, um, and meet context-specific needs, as well as support one's aspirations in life, be social, economic, or otherwise. The work of the Household Water Insecurity Experiences Research Coordination Network, or HYSRCN, to me has been particularly instrumental in advancing the theory, measurement, and empirics around household water insecurity in low- and middle-income countries. And of the several really important advances that this group has made, one of the most notable is the development of a cross-culturally validated scale for measuring diverse water insecurity experiences, ranging from emotional distress to food insecurity to water interruptions, and thus shifting the discussion uh, and, of course, the methods and empirics away from conventional assessments of water security as focused around drinking and domestic uses and towards a much more broader set of integrative human development needs that water is definitely enrolled within. Um, <clears throat> I won't get too, too much into the COVID-19 discussion because I prefer to leave those to epidemiologists and public health experts. But the basic idea of the paper that was led by Dr. Justin Stoller was that without secure water supplies, a range of prevention measures, uh, particularly around the transmission of COVID-19 and other diseases, may be compromised. So the data that we used in that paper comes from over 8,000 households in 23 low and middle income countries and was collected prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. But it nevertheless demonstrates a prevalence in water insecurity that impedes key health prevention measures. So for example, in the four weeks prior to the administration of that survey, we found that 46% of sampled households were either unable to wash their hands or reported borrowing water from others, which may undermine hygiene uh, you know, and physical distancing, for example, particularly as it relates to you know, collecting water, standing in line at stand posts and things like that. So the argument in this paper is not that you know, water security predicts COVID-19 transmission, but rather that it adds an additional layer of risk onto um, how we should understand uh, transmission more generally. 
Um, a second component of this paper, and one that definitely applies uh, to contexts like South Asia and India in particular, is that uh, you know the cost of achieving basic and universal access to water and sanitation uh, was estimated at you know four, under four hundred and thirty billion dollars between 2015 and twenty thirty, whereas the cost of emergency measures such as for COVID-19 just last year in the months of March and April racked up trillions of dollars. Now, again, this isn't to say that, you know, universal access to secure water, if that was present, such a pandemic would have been averted, but it is to say that it could have likely played a role in reducing risk and transmission. So I think part of what this paper does um, is that it hopes to remind us of the fact that spending now to achieve these ambitious targets around water and sanitation could have significant implications down the road, um, including in context of future diseases and pandemics. I think we've had a very thought-provoking conversation and we've talked a lot about all these issues and problems associated with water. So to wrap this episode, with increasing anxiety over water in the subcontinent, where does the solution to South Asia's water crisis begin? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question to, to end us off. Um, and here I'd just like to reflect in 2018, the government of India came out with this report that stated that you know, the country was experiencing the worst water crisis in recorded history. Um, but even here, and we, as we've discussed over the last 30 or 40 minutes, it's really important to understand that the water crisis is actually longstanding, right? It's deeply differentiated and it's, you know, not this sudden event that's uniformly experienced across India or South Asia for that matter. Along with my colleague uh, Vishal Narayan in uh, uh, Haryana, we've argued that Today, uh, many state-led efforts really sideline the underlying causes of this quote-unquote water crisis. So efforts such as you know, large dam development or micro-irrigation and regulation, these are really perceived to increase water storage and volumetric availability and also to reduce unsustainable water use. But if we return way back to the original question that you posed around water scarcity and its kind of origins, we should really recognize that the water crisis is not simply a function of lack of water or these unequal supply demand gaps, right? It's fundamentally one of unequal water distribution, access and use that's shaped by institutions that range from the village to the national policy scale. So I think as we think about solutions the idea of shifting from aggregated water supply or rather deficiencies in that towards conceptualizing the water crisis as one of uh, a problem of distribution that's mediated by institutions and entitlements is a key pathway for us to, to make progress on this important issue. So Samir, with that, we come to the end of our episode. We have really enjoyed learning from you. Um, thank you so much for your time and we wish you luck for your future research. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to our episode. You can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and other platforms. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Links to these platforms will be in the description box. We will attach links to Samir's journal articles in the description box as well. See you next month.